Yeah. Hey, everybody. How are hey. we doing? Good morning. morning. Good morning. We're without Ryan today because Ryan was afraid. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Ryan is actually finishing up moving today, so he won't be able to join us. But we're here, and I'm glad you guys are here. No, so this is how it's going to go. For for everyone needs to know this. We moved Ryan out of his house into a different place, and then he's going to move into an apartment for a period of time, and then we got to move him into a house when he eventually buys. So we're moving him at least four times. That's what happened to me when I moved here. Yeah. I, I had the moving team. That I, I exhausted them because uh, we moved so much. You guys uh, must love Ryan. We do. We really yeah, do. Yeah, we <laughs> well, looking at this next <laughs> chapter, <laughs> what is the name of this chapter? Revolt of, of the masses. masses. The revolt of the masses. Holy smokes. Uh, so I guess I'll, consi- uh, I'll start with this question, number one. Consider the ways in which technology in the form of cell phones and personal computers shapes the way we think. How does this differ from how people might have experienced the world 50 or 100 years ago? I would say quite different, but let me just read this quote of his, 95 and 96. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there were a couple of things in here I I wouldn't say I wanted to take issue with, but I would say that I just want to give some perspective to, a Christian perspective to. He says, to put it bluntly, the modern cultural imagination sees the world as raw material to be shaped by the human will. Perhaps the most important factor in shaping this has been technology. To return to the medieval farmer, this is an analogy he gives in the chapter. His life, the medieval farmer's life, was utterly dependent on the soil available in his locale and upon the rhythm of the seasons. Today, irrigation means that we can farm the desert. Glass houses, insecticides, and fertilizers mean that soil and the seasons lack the omnipotence they once possessed. Nature's authority has not been eliminated, but it has been significantly mitigated. The same goes for medicine. Diseases that were once death sentences can now be addressed with simple medications. Some, like polio, have been eradicated. And geography is no longer the force that it was. With cheap transport, public and private, Distances that were once measured in days or weeks can now be measured in hours. Page 96. Uh, Kind of the end of the paragraph there. He says, Neither the seasons nor geography of the land are as significant as they once were. Technology shifts the balance of power from nature toward human agency and the competition between agencies. So my question was, isn't this what we were supposed to do, though? I literally just wrote that question. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> yeah. So so what did you write? What was your reaction to My that? The question was, isn't this part of extending Eden and reversing the curse? Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. And I don't I don't know if he's saying that that is a bad thing. Yeah. yeah. He, I think he's just giving a description of how things have fundamentally changed so quickly. Uh, right. But uh yeah, I I I didn't I didn't look at that and go Oh yeah, this is terrible. We should go back to the old paths of, <laughs> of you know laboring in a, in a in a way that barely causes you know sure. us to survive. Right, and, right. Uh, Let me just read but, the vocation really quickly. This is the imaging or the image bearing vocation. It's Genesis one twenty eight. One sentence: Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so it just seems to me that God had always intended us to develop technology. God had always intended us 
to be able to uh, subdue the world through um, through our vocation mm. uh, in that way, and to bring and to bring it into our dominion. And I think what he's doing here is his application, though is that in the service of the sinful nature, mm-hmm. this is what I presuppose mm-hmm. that he means, that instinct, like the instinct to rule, has just gone out of control. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's not led to greater glory to God. Yeah. It's led to a diminishing of the glory of God. He says again, uh, if expressive individualism has come to focus on personal satisfaction as the meaning of life, technology has served that cause well. I don't think that's debatable. Yeah. Of course that's true, but is technology only the handmaiden of the radical self and its project of self-expression? Can't it be used for good? And I have a particular example, and I'm hoping you're already thinking about it. Well, I, I, th- I think, you know, I, one of... One of his prescriptions at the end of the book uh, suggestions is to, is to recapture a concept of natural law. And so that concept of natural order, what is the technology, what technology uh, is supposed to do is to make us more us. Yeah. Right. Which to, it's to make nature more what it was designed to be. Right. And what's happening now is it's twisting and making us and, and trying to make us something that we're not right. Right. The, the cell phone in your pocket gives you an omniscience that frankly, I don't (laughs) know if we were ever designed, (laughs) right. Designed to have, you know, and then, you know, going on through the medical stuff, uh, surgery to remove cancer is to, is to make a person more whole. Um, and, and, and rather than, the mutilation of, of genitals in order to, to try to be something that you were not originally. The, the, there's fundamentally two different ethics driving yeah. those two surgeries. So while they might use the same kinds of technology, there's a morality to the one because it's saving a human life, and there's an immorality to the other because it's it's mutilating hmm. a human being made in God's image. Yeah. Is that what you're kind of driving yeah, at there? Yeah, and, and one is... Pursuing to to heal nature, yeah, and right. One is pursuing to flip the order yeah. of it. That's a really good summary of that. I think. Um, well, I would I would have you consider two things, and this is this this is stuff I think about. Maybe you don't, but I do. And that is that I think the roots of technology are actually Judeo Christian. And here's what I mean by that. Up until the Industrial Revolution, human life and human society looked about the way it did a thousand years ago. Mm. I mean, life hadn't changed all that much, right? Mm -hmm. And so what changed it? Technology. The principles of the free market, right, made it possible to rapidly produce technologies due to competition and the free exchange of goods. Think about what gave rise to technology, Individual principles of freedom and liberty are rooted in the teachings of Jesus and Paul, mm-hmm. when no other religious figure was teaching that. Um, think about the Judeo-Christian ethic of personal freedom to think independently. Uh, historically, gave rise to the sciences. Newton, Kepler, Pascal, Paley, and on the list goes, Louis Pasteur. 
and and so the social principles of the free exchange of goods, the competition needed to improve those goods, <laughs> to actually build the better product, are grounded in a Judeo-Christian ethic of liberty and freedom. Paul said, it is for liberty or freedom that Christ has set you free. Yeah. And no one else was mm-hmm. teaching that. Mm-hmm. No other religion did teach that. Yeah. Conformity is what was being taught as opposed. Yes, yes. So so shouldn't technology be then in the service of or the handmaiden of the gospel and the church, not the bankrupt uh, realization or project of realizing my my ultimate self or my, my, my desired self? Um, shouldn't we have that view of technology? Isn't, but there needs to be a conversation because they're easily conflated. And what I mean by that is we can use technology in the church and it hasn't helped the church. So to have a bunch of pastors who are inundated with um, a social media presence and the need to perform or have that uh, oh, notoriety, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that hasn't helped mm-hmm. the church. So I think there's a, yeah, I think in, in a, a 10,000 foot level, yeah, I think technology can serve and mm-hmm. should serve. Um, but we have to be pretty judicious because we know the heart is deceitful above all things. Right. Yeah. So it will it I mean, will bend it to its will. We're sitting here using technology as a as a hopefully this this technology yeah. would would have been out of the reach of everybody, you know, hundred and fifty years ago. Um and yet now we're using it as in an in an effort to edify our congregation and, right. and um so I think there's always the danger of wanting to build a tower of Babel. Mm. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm gonna ascend. To, I'm gonna ascend to the heights, and and um, and so I think holding holding that uh, view of hey, I, I in some ways need to distrust you know my motivations and always be bringing them before the Lord and asking Him to purify them um, yeah. is important, mm. especially if your ability to magnify your impact grows and and. Uh, well, we were talking yeah. earlier uh, off camera about the the idea of the Christian celebrity and how you guys had a pretty recent experience. I I won't name it, but that caused you to just chafe against that. And so there is clearly the use, the bringing to bear of a lot of resources, including technology, essentially for the <laughs> the promotion of a person. And not necessarily the gospel, though we hope the gospel will be involved in it. And so, mm-hmm. so my question for you would be: how, how do we, how do we thread that needle, man? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we, as a church, yeah. not be given into self promotion versus yeah. gospel promotion in the use of technology? Yeah, I think it's the first question of the Westminster Catechism, right? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Um, so when we approach technology, whether it's the use of internet, Facebook, mm. what we're doing here, or right. making more crops, um, yeah, good know, plowing point. the field, things like that, we're using technology for those things. We need to, as a church, we're using those for the glory of God and the betterment of the church and the reaching of the lost for Christ. That there is a goal um, that it's not about us. Right? Yeah. We sit here, yeah, yeah. we talk about this book, we share our thoughts and our opinions, but it's never about me, it's never about you, it's yes. about the glory of the Lord. We're that's trying right. to magnify His name. And I think if we keep that in the proper place, mm-hmm. I think that's the, at least the first step in making sure, guarding ourselves against slipping into maybe a celebrity pastor. Uh, I, think so. I, I think so, I think so. 
I would add to that as a, as a secondary. So first, mm. the primary would be acknowledging God as Lord over all things. But then is technology being used in service of others or is mm-hmm. it self-serving? So mm-hmm. for instance, the expansion of our crop yields because of technology serves the I'm going to just use the phrase greater good, mm-hmm. but I think in terms of, uh, I would mimic it after our gifts. I'm being given a gift to steward, not for my personal benefit, but for the growth and edification of the church. So mm-hmm. then for the, in a global sense of humanity, I should advance technology. For I do the think there's some, con- That's there, uh, sometimes there's some confusion around that though. And, and sure. I think marrying the t- what you two are saying, there is, I enjoy doing this. Yes. Yes. I love yes. sitting yes. around and talking. To yeah. You. There's, right. Well, but I think part of that is the enjoyment of that which God has given and is good, the enjoyment of God Himself, and that we're using yeah. we're using our image bearing qualities. And in the same way of, of a, a crop producer, it doesn't necessarily just have to be uh, a clinical. This is only for other sure. people. Yeah, I think point. a good farmer enjoys mm-hmm. farming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that there's a there's a love and a delight that he has, and that is the enjoyment of God in it. Mm-hmm. You know. Man, that that segues perfectly into my next question, though, because according to the curse in Genesis 3, the farmer is not supposed to enjoy farming. He's supposed to labor Mm. with great toil by the sweat of his brow until he dies. (laughs) I mean, the curse is until you die, until you drop dead of a coronary in the field. Uh, so, So let me ask this question. Has the advent of modern technologies made it possible this is a heady question but i think it i think it's relatable it made it possible to reverse or mitigate some of the curses in the fall Absolutely. you you mentioned cancer removal of cancer and i think of my wife sure. my wife is a cancer survivor so am i but my wife's grandma went through the same thing it was the same cancer at about the same age and 10 years later my wife's grandma was that cancer came back and it killed her hmm. they didn't get it all they thought they had a generation ago. They just didn't have the technology that they have today uh, to survive it. So has some of our technology and the application of it had been to actually reverse some of the curses in the fall. And let me list some of them. Here's the first one. Enmity, um, great enmity between uh, the animal kingdom and the, and humanity that was given to Eve, you know, uh, explicitly, um, enmity between man and woman, the husband now being a ruler over rather than a co-ruler with, mm-hmm. right? And then the woman's desire or enmity with the man to take that, now take that position from, from him, I think is probably where that text is going in chapter three, verse 16. And then you have the labor and toil with the earth. <clears throat> God seems to set forth a kind of, a the prospect that this man is going to be miserable. I mean, that's what it looks like. Difficulty in producing crops leading to a life of hard labor, death, and then we know from history starvation, because if you don't have good soil and you can't plant good crops or you don't know how, and you get on a ship and you sail to the Americas uh, to find gold, but you can't grow corn, uh, you're going to starve. You're going to freeze and starve. So, and then lastly, of course, death. You'll return to the ground. You weren't meant to. You were meant to live forever, but now you're going back to the dust of the earth. So haven't our technologies allowed us to sort of mitigate the effects of of the curse or even reverse some of them? 
Yeah, James. What do you think? I think it's a yes and no, right? Yeah. Where we say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, growing up on a farm, yeah, I mean, we have fertilizer that we're putting on the crop to increase um, the yield. You know, you're... Um, you have machines? Yeah, you're, you have machines. So you're still sweating, but uh, <laughs> you have AC at least. Um, but, I mean, you still have, um, you know, August 2014, we got a bunch of rain and all of the grain in the whole valley sprouted pretty much. There's wow. 80% sprout. So that means that you can't, I mean, most of the barley grown here is used for malt. Um, and all of that is, you can't use it for that. Then it goes to silage, but you're getting half the price. So it's a yes and no. Um, it's still a struggle. Yeah, there's still a struggle there. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and, and I think my machi- dad would testify to that. The machines break down. And all the time. And he Daniel, spends his all winter the working time. on machines. <laughs> and, so there's thorns and thistles and whatever yeah. we do. But when you said that the man should labor by the the sweat of his brow, yeah, I don't think that that the the you know in the same way that we don't think that the image of God has been removed or the yes, purpose of that's purposes right. of God has been has been so maybe I removed. overstated that. I I do think that there is that the is man amazing. will he will yeah, but I do think that there's something godly if you know we sing in at Christmas time. Joy to the you know joy to the joy oh. to the world the savior reigns. Um, uh, oh wait, wait, which one is it? No more let thorns and and um, no more let thorns. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Yes, he's yeah. come to make. Uh, he's he's come to make <laughs> his blessings, blessings flow so far <laughs> as the curse is found. Okay, that's right? a good point. So man. that they're sorry Thank that you. took so nope. long. <laughs> no, nope. we enjoyed the song. I'll remember oh. it now. But no, there's a there's a there's a Christian. <laughs> it is Christian to be in vocations and 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 developing technology that is 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 mitigating the the consequences of the curse it's mm-hmm. it's part of god's mercy it's part of god's nature um, and you, you guys are so grace. smart like yeah. i literally i can tell everybody who's listening or watching right now i did not send these guys the, my questions ahead of time but you're going exactly in the, the direction i was going which is now that the kingdom of god has come and the kingdom of god is growing jesus gave the parables like uh, mustard seed mm. or he gave the leaven and the lump uh, those kinds of parables are the wheat and the tares and those kinds of things where the the idea here is that the kingdom is going to grow now gradually, eventually, and it's going to spread across the whole earth. And the gospel, according to Matthew 24, will be proclaimed among the nations before the end comes. And so we have this idea that the kingdom of God has now come, and some, and some of this, I would say, our ability through technology to mitigate uh, the the resort the results of the fall the consequences of the fall is impartially a response if technology is rooted in the judeo christian values of freedom liberty and healthy competition in the marketplace then clearly the, the kingdom of god has allowed us to experience a little bit of heaven on earth you know mm-hmm. to be able to to still like you said, it's hard work in the fields, but at least you're driving in an air-conditioned tractor or truck, you and, know? And you get home, and you turn a knob, and hot water pours out of oh, a, yeah. a shower that's a miracle. and watches the dust and grind <laughs> from you. Right. Historically, that's a miracle, right? Yeah. Uh, so in any case, um, that's, that's where I was going to that. Truman goes on to say, on page 97... 
He says, as countries allowed for religious freedom, then eventually churches became competitors in a religious marketplace. Uh, Now, I really like this idea, but I don't know that he fully explores it to my satisfaction, so we're going to try to do that today. Um, uh, Became competitors in a religious marketplace, competing, to put it crudely, for adherence. Uh, This fundamentally transformed the dynamics of power between church authorities and congregants. Now the congregant was able to choose which church to attend, which was never the case before, Mm -hmm. especially when the ownership of an automobile made it possible to travel to find a place of worship of one's choice. So the question is, is freedom of religion a social good, the kind of freedom of choice that he's talking about? And is freedom of choice where and how to worship a net positive for society, or has it been detrimental, Pat? I think it's a net positive for the faithful. What I mean by that is if you are forced, if you have no choice, um, you're a part of something without actually, you can be a part of something without actually being a part of it. So in some ways, it is like a winnowing fork that you throw the wheat and chaff up and the wind blows it out, and those who remain are those who really are committed. And you're fond of often saying, I want to go with the goers. I want to pursue those who want to move, active, take their faith seriously, develop as a disciple. No, that that is life-giving. Yeah, it's opposite of I have a bunch of people that don't really want to be here, but they're forced to. So I I I do think it's a net positive. So you're saying it can be a net positive so long as we don't take a view of the church where we're developing an audience, not a congregation. Sure. Yeah. Trying to entertain, tickle yeah. ears, those kind of things. Yeah, through technology. Trying yeah, to gain sure. more, mar- <laughs> trying to gain more market share, you know, in the city. And yeah, exactly. Just do the the sheep stealing instead of building a you know a genuine uh, family. Yeah. Well, we have scriptures like Hebrews uh, is it thirteen seventeen that says you will give an account to, or mm. obey your elders for oh. they are the ones who have to give an account for you or something like that, Matt. Yeah. And uh, Mark Dever's fond of saying. Um, uh, 20 people on the day of judgment, if you're pastoring over 20 people, that'll feel like a lot. <laughs> yeah. That'll feel like a lot. <laughs> Let alone That's a great way 600 people. So um, the, the nature of the pastor is to shepherd the sheep or the flock that God has given us, and yes. that is sufficient enough. Good. Mm-hmm. And so I want to know who the flock is. Great, yeah. great input. Guys, what are your thoughts? Josh? Yeah. <clears throat> oh, sorry. Um, I think back then... Um, I guess like kind of like out of the zone of like the competitive marketplace. Um, I was kind of thinking like from the pastor's perspective, um, maybe now that we are in a competitive marketplace, that could lead to like predispositions that could lead to um, like the seeker sensitive movement. Sure. Um, or you, when you're a pastor at church, you're more focused on having to bring people in and convince them away from this other religion. Yeah. When rather like back then, you don't have to worry about any of that. And so you can just, yeah. your job is to focus on biblical truth. Like if you um, were assigned a parish, you know, back yeah. then in the medieval era before Luther, that's the parish you went to, <laughs> yep. yeah. right? Whereas in Protestantism, all of a sudden this freedom of choice comes into play. And if a guy at your parish or your church is not preaching the gospel, go go to a different one. Get on your horse and buggy and <laughs> go walk to a yeah. different one. I mean, that's arguably why so many people went to Spurgeon's church, like by Spurgeon's age is that there's so few vicars that were preaching the gospel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and people just wanted to go hear Charlie. That's what they called him. <laughs> so there's de- yeah, there's definitely a, a net positive to that of hey, like we can we don't have to have a terrible pastor. That means the only option yeah. that we have. Yeah. Um, but that also 
uh, has the ripple effect. The other side of the coin is mm-hmm. it has imbued more authority in the individual than I think mm. Paul does a little bit. How yeah. so? Tease that out a little bit more. What's the in that the super be- senior pastor type? Is that what you mean? No, no. Or just the individual the individual congregant now um, becomes the, they become the arbiter of all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of all what is true and good. And like you were preaching yesterday, we have a tendency to make secondary and tertiary things divisible. Like yeah. we, we divide over those yeah. things. And we, I'm going to go find a place where, you know... The, All my boxes are checked. Right? right? And what you miss out on there is that lifelong uh, commitment to one another where you see people born... You yeah. see people yeah. married. Yeah. You see people. You get to participate in all these phases of life together. You mm-hmm. get. You don't. You you recognize that you know I don't have unlimited choices, and so I'm going to have to learn to uh, you know to prefer others mm-hmm. above myself. Like sure. there are some there are some drawbacks there, and that it makes the the individual the uh, and then and then well, also look, can, try, I, can I put some feet to this because yeah, it sure. goes back to the curse. So although the curse is mitigated by some technologies, technology then will expose another side of the curse that really wasn't apparent until that technology came in, in advancement. Mm-hmm. Because of high mobility of, con- of people, we live in a transient age. So what you're describing as a blessing of a time and place where you were at friends, community, family, all around. You didn't move. This was You were known and loved at the same time. Right. But we live in such a mo- high mobility culture we're transient in people's lives, and guess what? We don't know how to be friends. Yeah. We don't know what it takes to have good, solid. We have acquaintances more than we have friendships. So now we need the gospel and God's word to help us and remind us what does it mean to be friends. Great, great, mm-hmm. great point. If I may segue <clears throat> into this idea, he mentions how the the old farmer <clears throat> or the the man who lived in the village to do anything would have to gather to do it. He would yeah. have to gather with like others. listening to music or stuff like that, or like you listening know. to this podcast. You can listen to it in your car. You can, and absolutely no shame. Um, you can listen to it on your headphones while you're working out by yourself, mm-hmm. um, which is great. I think a net positive for sure. But it used to be that if you did anything like this, got any instruction or any teaching or anything, you had to come together socially to do it. And so there is a there's a trade off with that. Yeah. When did when when did Bibles proliferate to the to the masses. Well, it wasn't until after World War II or just before World War II. I mean, well, that there's been a huge boom then, but you know, family Bibles. Well, the good printing press. Well, could that, print that's a whopping, technology. A whopping it. ten Bibles a day. Yeah, and so it went, you know, from exclusive access to scriptures is in the churches. You know, the 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 clergy had it to now the wealthy. Have it, and there's a maybe a community Bible sure. in one of the in one of the churches that people can come. Or you could have one in a home church or yeah. something. Yeah, and then it went, you know, to uh, you know the middle class, and and now they're they're everywhere. But that's what eight, maybe 1800. Every home had a Bible in it. Yeah. You know, well, maybe, I mean, with maybe the, set, seven, the you know 1700s. The, the reason why the King James Bible took off in popularity is because it was compact and small, whereas the Geneva Bible, which previously was the more popular Mm -hmm. English Bible, was huge. It was like a giant study Bible. So people could have a personal copy and take them to church. But it didn't matter whether or not there was a Bible in every home. 
until the literacy revolution of the late 1800s. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, but my point is for 1800 years, we Communal. heard the word, oh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. primarily we point. heard the word uh, preached. That's why Colossians. And, with, and did it in community. The well, you're right God, about that. Yeah. Richly dwelling with you, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. There's a connection there. I'm singing the truth to you. Now, yes. I wouldn't give up our, yeah, I wouldn't give up our Bibles. For, <laughs> <laughs> please don't. No, no, no. But, but you know. this is a good point, it's man. Um, <clears throat> part of my scholarly acumen is the study of orality and literacy in the ancient, particularly in the ancient world, though I am interested in that subject in the modern world too, um, because it only took a hundred years. It only took 150 years for the world to go from 10% literate to 10% illiterate. And today (laughs) in the world, only 10% of the population of the world is considered illiterate Mm -hmm. to some degree. So I would say that orality was huge. There's a scholar named Matthew Gordley, and his area of expertise is how the early church educated itself. They adopted from the Jews uh, this antiphonal form of learning. We've done it a few times, like on Sunday morning, where you have a scripture and then people sort of read the rest of it or something like that. But in, in that mainly oral society, they just had to know these songs. Like, probably between, I want to say, probably Daniel knows all the stanzas of Amazing Grace. You probably know them all. Don't you think you know them all? All seven? (laughs) Do you know all seven? Uh, I could stumble my way through it, maybe. I I don't even know the first one. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, if you grow up in a a church where you sing, like, out of the same hymnal, Mm -hmm. and you do that your entire adult life... You can just break out into those stanzas, and you know it, because you know the tune, and you've repeated it enough, and that's the way people learn. So what Paul is talking about there in Colossians chapter 3 really is how they learned their Bibles. They sang Mm -hmm. them. They remembered them through song. And uh, so, so there really is a point here of saying that back then they had the technology of antiphonal Mm -hmm. or uh, Mm -hmm. hymnology. Right? They had hymnology was a technology. But in the second century, they developed what's called a codex. And so they took all of their scriptures and they figured out a way to get the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, into one compact leather-bound book form. And that was a technology that re- revolutionized yeah. the, the actually not just Christianity, but actually the world. It was the advent of the modern book. Yeah. So that's why I say so many of our inventions go back to the Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. ethic of learning and instruction and teaching. Yeah, sure. But even it, with the book, think about the, I mean, think about the proliferation of evil ideas through books. Oh, yeah. You know? and, right. and so there's always mm-hmm. that, like, evil's always trying to, to creep in and pervert what... <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah anything that God has intended for yeah. good can yeah. be used by the sinful nature, the deceptive heart, for evil. Mm-hmm. Equally, and so he he mentions pornography in this. That that subject comes up in this chapter. Clearly, something that was designed for good, probably designed for good, <laughs> and most definitely can uh, 
and is used for great good. We have people. You're not talking about p- pornography. No, no, no. I mean okay. the internet. I'm sorry. Okay. I should yeah. clarify. Thank you for helping me clarify. No, I'm saying, well, he, well, sex was created for yeah. good. Oh, sure. Yeah. But pornography has been used as to, as a kind of mutilation of God's mm. image in the sexual relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would say the internet is capable of great good for the gospel of Jesus, yeah. but also can be used by the, the sinful heart to create these wildly ins- morally insane uh, sort of <laughs> uh, detached, relationally detached sexual relationships mm-hmm. that are super detrimental to people. So yes, I think it's we have to be careful because uh, every technology that we develop, with the exception of maybe stained glass windows, um, can be used for some evil purpose mm. as well. Um, I am certain somebody has figured out yes. how to make a stained <laughs> oh, glass Oh, you're probably window. right. Yeah. You're probably right. Well, the reason I originally asked this question, though, about is freedom of religion a social good? Is it a net good freedom of choice? Um, what church to go to? Where you worship at? The reason I asked that is because we live in a day now where so many Protestants, we hear about this, all the time, I think through social media, Protestants are beginning to convert back to Catholicism, hmm. right? And uh, a few high-profile uh, sort of yeah. internet influencers, this has happened to not, not very long ago, um, and it's really not over doctrinal matters. It's not because they sat there and looked what at the you? doctrine of justification by faith, because there's no competition doctrinally. I mean, there just isn't. Um, it really is for the sake of stability. Yep. We live in an unstable time, and mm-hmm. and in and a time in which that is very unstable, right? Where our feet are planted in midair, as Greg Kugel says, and people are looking to some yep. institution that has fixity, some institution that just doesn't change. And when you look at the Catholic Church, they still dress like medieval wizards. <laughs> right? Like the, the popes and the bishops and stuff, they still look like medieval wizards. And it's just the perpetuation of that sort of medieval form of religion that people look to to say that that looks like something that doesn't change. Yeah. And so there's a, this, there's a desire in the heart to have something that just is, is not transient, yeah. that doesn't change. Well, it's defined. And the, and the Catholic claim to an unbroken line of popes going back to... To Peter, Peter. Hmm, sure. um, I know that has been an attraction for some people in my circles. Hmm. What what about that? Wow. Is, is that that steadfast? You know, oh. um, when is it? Paul talks about you know the faith that that passed down to you, oh, um, yeah, and remaining true to it. Uh, there's a there's something about that. Hey, this is a, a steady chain from Christ to you know to now. Right. Um, even though there's, I, I don't there's agree that there's no Well, of course, it's change, historically but... not demonstrable yeah. at all. <laughs> I mean, it would be it would be so easy to defeat that position from just a <laughs> just to talk about the medieval popes but, and mm-hmm. also, they were. But I do some of them were Satan worshippers. I do think that there some of it is that pushback on the on the individual liberty that you're talking about. Um, one of the accusations that Catholics make is that you know sola scriptura is not anywhere in scripture and that what it does is it makes me the sole interpreter of what I'm reading. Yes. Right. And there's no imp, you know 
and and you know we 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 all got that book on our desk <laughs> for about the you know the end times revelation thing where clearly somebody was interpreting scripture outside of community. Oh, oh yeah, you mean just yeah. a kooky guy that yeah, gave us yeah. an end times manifesto um, or something? But I think there is a desire for authority. Like yeah, you yeah, you see right. it with kids. Right. Kids are constantly testing the boundary to say, "Hey, am I safe?" Right. Some of it's rebellion. Some of it's sinfulness for sure. But some of it is, "Hey." Am I in a secure exactly. place? Exactly. Is there an author- is there an authority here that right. protects me and cares for me and and uh, and I think the the cons- you know we're with the Catholic Church placing their dogma at the kind of the same level uh, as Scripture. Right. There's a there's a claim to authority there that can be really comforting. Of I'm not out here just trying to figure it out on my own. I don't understand what I'm reading. I don't you know. Right. Um, so yeah. I do. Th- I right. think. I do think that there is a place for that. I do right. think that yes. there is. Don't so, you think that's uh, what the Jordan Peterson phenomena is? Because he he's so well spoken, he's mm. so accomplished. He's a clinician and a scholar, and he knows what his principles are. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. knows what they're not, and people just young men particularly look to him as someone who just is an authority yeah. on a subject and. And I don't have to guess, you know, what do you think? But he's not an isolated authority. He yeah. bases his authority on principles that are transcendent to him. Yeah. And so I think it craves, so Peterson will get into this, or not Peterson, Truman will get into this. I don't know if you're going to reach it, but the world is constantly self-justifying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so once someone gets tired of it, stops for a moment and realizes this is insanity. Right. We can't mm-hmm. self-justify. Or towards the end of the chapter, I forget the the the, uh, the sociologist who says we examine the world in the way we expect it to be, and therefore it becomes what we expected it yeah, to be. Right. It's that self-justification. So, um, so the sociological project becomes prophetic yes. in the sense yeah, that it. it doesn't just measure culture; it drives culture. <laughs> yes. Right. It shapes. It sets it. the markers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think what Daniel was saying has such merit, man. There really is a is a desire for people to have some external authority to them that just doesn't seems like it doesn't change. And this is why I would say we do have to go back to scripture and we do have to go back to scripture interpreted rightly. Mm -hmm. So what do we do, Pastor James, with some guy who gives you an end times or some weird kooky view of Judaism (sighs) that's really sort of his own private interpretation? Right. Well, how do we handle that? He he's got the word of God. What does he? What else does he need? Well, it's the isn't it the the side of we we need good theological historical um, truth. Yeah, that we don't interpret. It's not just my opinion of interpreting scripture. That's post. That's modernism, right? That truth is found within myself and. I can reason the truth from this text. That's not what we say. We say truth exists outside of ourselves, and so we need others. We need community yeah. to be able to interpret that. And I think that community extends the bounds of history, uh, just my present history. I'm not just looking to you guys. I'm looking to John Owen. I'm looking to Augustine. I'm looking to um, other church fathers who interpreted Scripture, and I'm trying to line it all up and say, okay, like let, let's see a continuity here that is staying faithful to scripture uh, if someone comes with a new idea 
that's not good. You know, yeah, I think that's sure. I think John Piper says something to the effect of if I study scripture and I come to an opinion that I can't find anyone else has, I'm probably <laughs> wrong. I'm uh, probably wrong. Yeah, that's probably a good indicator. So I think that you're wrong. I think that's probably it. And when we deal with people, we still have to take them back to the word. Um, and that's the work of hermeneutics. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, mm. As pastors trying to know the word in and out. Man, great, great answer. I think yeah. your answer is the right one. I've been studying the history of the Reformation, particularly mm. starting with Martin Luther. Mm. And the thing that, that strikes me is that the original Protestants were not anti-tradition, mm-hmm. not at all. Far, far <laughs> That's a myth. Mm-hmm. They were not just for the personal, private interpretation of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Their doctrine of sola scriptura is the doctrine of sola regula, sola regula fide, which means the Scriptures are the sole uh, principle or the sole regulating principle of faith. Mm-hmm not the only um, constraint to my faith. In other words, what they, what they would say is, you need tradition, to, but you need the Scripture because you need to hold your tradition up to Scripture, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Right? So Scripture is what yeah. is our sole rule of faith and practice, mm-hmm. not our tradition, but you still need human tradition, mm-hmm. and we need Augustine, and we need Philip Turretin, mm-hmm. and we need the Reformers, and we need uh, the people down through and Anselm and Aquinas. Mm-hmm. So we can look at these people and say, okay, how have they interpreted Paul? Mm-hmm. How, how has Paul been interpreted down the centuries? And we can, and then we can do our scholarship in the community of church history. Right. Right. I yeah. think that's so, yeah. so important. Yeah. So it's not that. And also remember. The, the reformers thought that they were reformed Catholics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't think yeah. that they were they were Luther, anti-papacy. Sure. Luther didn't apostatize. He didn't leave the faith. He no. They wanted to forsake reform the church. the church. Yes, <laughs> to reform the church, not to utterly yeah. burn it to the ground and deny it. Yeah, and I think we can we can help teach our people this by by maybe quoting the Apostles' Creed in church together as sure. a people. Uh, the Nicene Creed. Nicene is much better. Yeah, absolutely. The Athanasius Creed, if we want, Um, just to bring in that church history to show the importance of it in our faith, and that it is important. That's that's a very important point, because um, if you go to the Catholic, I think it's the United States Catholic website, like their website, Hmm. and you look at their statement of faith, you click on the button, statement of faith, it's not like ours. It, it's not like a systematic theology statement of faith the way mm. ours is. Theirs is the Nicene Creed. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so the Reformers did, weren't in disagreement with the Nicene Creed. Right. What they were saying is the Church, it's ecclesiology, it's soteriology, has to be reformed. Yeah. It's bibliology, mm. has to be reformed, mm. uh, which, is, which is so important for us to understand. So the reason why I bring this up is because I think as good Protestants— we, we want to make sure that we're protesting the right things, the main things that are that we should be, and the mm. things we shouldn't be, as your yeah. sermon so eloquently yeah. and passionately put forward yesterday. Yeah. Let me move on. Uh, long sta- he says on page 98, long-standing elite, the long-standing elite critique of the family as oppressive, imagine that, mm. and tyrannical, has found its counterpoint in popular culture. Critique by people like Marx, who <laughs> hated his own family, in, in, hated let his, his kids starve, impregnated his maid, and then, uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Or Nietzsche, who went crazy, 
literally yeah. mentally insane the last decade of his life and mm. abandoned his family or Rousseau who dropped them off at an orphanage I and think, didn't care for them? Again, I think you they're, go back, the, they're the paragons of yeah. what his family's supposed to be. Mm. I think you go back to Genesis and you see this, there's this assault, this all out assault against yes. the, the order that God established. Mm. And you see it in, I think, I think it's in chapter four or five where you go from Adam and Eve and then all of a sudden, is it Lakish or Lamish or who has seven Lamech. wives, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. and he and he's boasting to these seven wives where you see all of a sudden there's this, <laughs> wait a minute, there was this, this yeah. order of, you know, man, and now it's man and seven women, like, right. that there's a... Uh, well, we even mentioned like yeah. polygamy last week, and let me put a fine point on this. God's last word on any matter is his most relevant one. So, so even though we see, for example, Abraham and, uh, who's the little one, Jacob, right? So Abraham, grandson, Jacob, <clears throat> Jacob has two wives, yeah. Abraham has a couple chicks and, uh, uh, and so does, uh, I think so does, uh, Esau. So what we see there is we see no biblical censure for that, but what we also see is that it never turns out well, <laughs> that it's always, it always seems like it just doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, in Jacob's case, you can't get the 12 tribes without Leah and Rachel, or mm -hmm. what, was it Rachel or Rebecca? Rebecca was his mom, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you can't get the 12 tribes because Leah and Rachel share, you know, uh, that role mm -hmm. as being the matriarch of those 12 tribes. Uh, so there's no biblical censure there, but all, there's an implicit uh, acknowledgement that that situation isn't good, like yeah. it can't be sustained. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you get to Jesus, Jesus clearly says, uh, marriage relationships are supposed to be like they were in the beginning. Mm -hmm. One man, one woman mm -hmm. for life. Yeah. Uh, Adam and Eve are the paragon. They're the archetypes of what mm -hmm. a modern marriage is supposed to be, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, great, great point. Uh, so think of some examples in modern culture though, not just Lamech or whatever the guy's name was, his, his assault against the nuclear family, right? But also think about, okay, the family portrayed in modern days. Can you think of a TV show or... <laughs> where there's a good dad. No. Where there's a oh. smart, oh, kind, wise father. Never. Who, I, I can think of one. Yeah. Leave it to Beaver. Yeah. Well, <laughs> or, uh, or, we have to go uh, back that far. What That's is what it? I'm Ward? Yeah. What is it? Uh, <laughs> my, uh, my daughter literally called me Ward the, last night. The Andy Griffith show. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, it's, it's, I can't think of a I can't think of a single example. Of well, in shows today, the dad is always Homer Simpson or some version, yeah. just a stupid, mm. mindless moron, immoral. Basically, hates his family. Yeah. Um, and and it's always some stupid, dumb guy who just doesn't know anything. And and then the teenagers have to educate the dad about how the world really works, right? Mm. <laughs> Which is so totally flipped right. from Torah, from yes. the New Testament. Yeah, Proverbs. <laughs> right, right, right. So I want to bring this up now. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Here's what it says. Now for us, this is not shocking, because all of you guys, and you will, Josh, when you guys have kids, you and Gracie have kids, bring your children up in the fear of the Lord and the honor of their parents, right? That's what we're called to do, okay? Now for the, you, this won't be shocking. 
But for a person who's maybe listening to this podcast, who grew up in breathing the air of this world culture, this is a shocking statement. Mm. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, <laughs> in order that it may go well with you and you may live a long time on the earth. And fathers, do not make your children angry or exasperate them, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So considering the moral insanity of our culture now, how can a passage like this help to reorient our parenting to train a child up in the way, remember what that proverb says, in the way they should go? Mm -hmm. They should be trained and, and reared in the fear and admonition of the Lord and in the honor of the parent. Um, so what's our responsibility here mm -hmm. to be a countercultural movement in this regard? Uh, I'll, I'll kick things off. I Man believe six the, children. Yeah. <laughs> the grand failure of our age is abdicating our responsibility over children to guide mm -hmm. them. It's that very thing and allowing them that is the greatest sin that culture has committed is to allow kids to choose their own path. And to not guide them, not to love them, not to shepherd them, not to put boundaries around mm -hmm. them. Right. It's that is an unloving thing in the culture. It's unloving. But it's the and most I, loving thing. It, yeah. it, but but to rear them yes. in the way they should go. Yeah. So that they obey and honor the parent. Totally. Now, so I'm thinking about specific examples of what you just said. Yeah. Okay, I'm thinking about a twelve year old boy. His mom comes into my office years ago. This was years ago. And I read this passage to her. Her 12-year-old tw junior hire was just losing his mind at home, going through puberty, but also he didn't have a dad, and she didn't raise him with any rules. Yeah. Mm. And now he's getting big enough where he can slam her against the wall and tell, tell her to get out of my face or I'll put you on the floor. You know. Mm. So she's scared. She's realized she's not raised this child right. I read this mm -hmm. passage to her, and she literally looks at me and says, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. I can't read this passage to my kid. He'll knock my teeth out. Mm -hmm. And so then, then it was the church's responsibility then to bring this kid in Into. and to sit him and say, hey, guess what, kid? We're going to be your mentors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going to show you what it, what it looks like to be a man, a real man yeah, of absolutely. God. Right. right? But I'm also thinking about the trans thing with the Disney execs. Whose, whose meeting was leaked to the public, yeah. Yeah. where they were all sitting around a table bragging. Wanting it. Yes, about allowing their kids to choose their gender. That's crazy. It is. That's insane. That's not trading a child in the way they should go. Yeah. That's just affirming the child's <sighs> self. <laughs> I get angry. Actual assumption. I feel, That's angry. I feel, I feel That's burning abuse. passion reading this chapter. I really do. Mm. And it's hard to, well, how, how do I direct this? Because the initial response, yes, is anger when we see that. Yeah, yeah. And, mm. uh, but anger is not going to solve this. Just lashing out doesn't. It's not going to redeem produce. anyone. Mm. Well, I think, yeah, I think uh, some of it is uh, fathers have, have, even within the home, have abdicated totally. their responsibility. Like yeah. we, were t we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Sure, you want to outsource your, your instruction of your children to a qualified professional? Awesome. You're still responsible for your child's education. That's part. That's part of you know. That's part of your authority over the child. Yeah, you're right. And if you abdicate that and step away from it and be like, no, that's you know, my my wife deals with parent teachers me or whatever. Yeah. I think yeah. I think dads, I think fathers, I think men in general, 
and and part of this has been my own self-discovery where I have failed in this, um, have been given a, a role of headship that uh, is is not, you know, it's not domineering, it's not, you know, aggressive, but um, it is your act of, of service. You know, we talk about servant leaders. Your act of service is your leadership. Yeah. It's not just always doing the dishes. Yeah, or that's always, right. Like, now do that stuff. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> like, but it's and, and also presence. Yeah, and that leadership is a loving application of authority on the child, right? And and you can't do and it, it from is afar. to love them. Yeah, and you can't do it from afar. So you have to be present. You need to raise them up. Not you know they're not a generic nothing. You know that that you can you, you got to take into account their personality and their like all, all that stuff. Yeah, but it is an application of the, your authority, mm-hmm. and it bestows masculinity to to boys bestows femininity to, to to girls yep and the i mean part of the reason that men have uh that that caricature out in the public sphere is because they're playing on stereotypes that are common um absolutely and they've abdicated leader you know like they're not pushing back against that saying no that's not what manhood is yeah you know, yeah, uh, you, you're exactly yeah. right. I can think of examples in our own family life where um, <laughs> my wife, let me tell you, she is the matriarch of the home. Like after we had kids, she went from being a maiden to a matriarch. Yeah. She, you know, and she was, she, <laughs> she manages that homeboy and tells me where, when everything is going on and you know how I am. I forget all that anyway. Hmm. So, um, but what would happen is everybody's regimented. Like everybody knows what, what's due, when they're going to be, where they need to be. Yeah. Everybody knows what chores need to be made. It's a list we make together. And then I model that as the man by doing my own chores in the house, modeling it before them. But there is, there is a point at which, as they begin to grow, man, they were started to get aggressive with her, especially the boys. And I would come into the room and walk into the room and the aggression would just go down because I was the alpha dog. You know, I mean, what you're saying, without men in the home, boys don't know how to become men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you have these boys who think they're women, (laughs) they think they're female, but you also have, at least in the black community and some minority communities where fatherlessness is really high. You have men becoming gangsters or men <laughs> becoming just things that they see playing yeah, out yeah. in their rap videos or, yeah. or whatever. And what's happening there is that because of an absence of men in the home, yeah. they don't know how to live life. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's totally res- fallen. They don't know the restraint of, you know. Of yeah, strength. Me- meekness yeah. is strength under control. Like mm-hmm. meekness is a right. grand thing inside the church and seeing men who demonstrate that. But... Having five boys, my, my they each know Kelsey is who I love the most, but they are also, now we have a sister, so Faye's there. But how my boys will know to treat women will come from how I teach them how to treat their mom. They will know that mm-hmm. in, intensely. They do know it intensely. They don't like when I have to come home or mom calls me because it's a level. I come in eight, nine, ten. If I have to come home, it's I'm starting at an eight, nine, ten. The the teeth are bared when I walk in. Uh, Okay, so next, 
next thing uh, he says here on page 98, he says, the nation state as we know it is of relatively recent vintage. A 19th century post-Napoleonic idea. But that does not lessen its importance in shaping identity over the last 150 years. Now, however, it too faces serious difficulty. So the question is, is patriotism legitimate? And when does patriotism become nationalism? And can we be proud of our country, still respectful of other nationalities or other nation states, but at the same time uh, be good patriots or citizens of our heavenly kingdom? And how do the two interact? I think I have to grasp it because I know, I think Truman, and correct me wrong, Jeff, but I think Truman's saying as the state is a form of authority in people's lives. And as that dissolves, so too does another one of the external authorities that come on. That's so, exactly right. So, but you're just, the question you're asking is more. What is the Christian response Application. to the state's authority? Yeah. Yes. And should we advocate for a strong central authority in the nation state? Yeah, that I think so. I think on the one hand, so so he, he, he brings up two scenarios. On the liberal progressive side, you have the dissolution yeah. of the idea of a nation like state right. because really our nation is endemically or systemically evil and racist— <clears throat> And so everything we've been right. built upon from their perspective yeah. is just racism and evil and oppression and colonialism yep. Yep. and imperialism. But then on the super far right of right side, you know, yeah. the I wouldn't even call it conservative, but I would call it the right of right. On that side, the government has become corrupt, so endemically corrupt or so system systemically corrupt that it, the whole mm. thing needs to be burn down and we need They're to call, start over both camps and, are calling for the same thing for different reasons for different reasons yeah, yeah. coming at it from two different angles but where's the christian i don't think uh, biblically i don't think you can get around you, you preach romans 13 that the general disposition of the of the christian is to be obedient as much as it depends you know as much as you can yeah um and i think throughout scripture this is a uh, it's one of my favorite topics, but throughout scripture, it's clear that God appoints the boundaries of nations. He causes kings to rise mm. and kings to fall. Like there is clearly an element of statehood, uh, whether it is, you know, the, the scope of it and the size of it is, is sure, hugely sure. debatable, but, um, there are, there are, you know, geographical boundaries ethnic you know their their ethnic considerations and and um and so i i don't think that the nation or a nation the concept of the nation um is antithetical to scripture in any way right i think it is part of god's exercise of his rule over the earth it's his form of order that's well, a, and that's a biblical perspective yeah and and the and the word that paul uses in the in romans is that he's a he's a deacon he, the, the the magistrate is a deacon mm, of servant. God. It's a yeah. servant of God um, for our good. Yeah. And so yeah. to, to have the, the attitude of, of pure liberty from any constraints of government um, is, a, is, is as un- unbiblical. It's as unbiblical right. in, in, the, in the 
governmental sphere as it is in the moral sphere. So then what is what would be good government? So he describes America, and I think this is a great thing, may not be the best. Uh, Daniel, I know you have an opinion on this, but America, a nation founded on political creed, not on ethnicity or language or land. I think that's more of an I- ideal that Scripture would uh, advocate, that whatever the political thing would be, might be debatable. But not on. He's saying a political identity. Yeah, political identity in which all people can assimilate around, regardless of an ethnic identity or a yeah. Right, right. So I would say, based on that government, I I I think that approach, what America has founded on, was more biblical than not. Yeah, right. Based on that, the 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 principles, the principle. Yeah, 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 Mm. principles of human freedom, and human flourishing. As an image bearer of God, yes. created in the image of God, yeah. uh, and so to protect those, and, and to the pr- government is to protect that. Yes, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. but the government exists for the general welfare of the people. That's a hugely debated phrase. It's very amorphous. Yeah. It's very vague. A lot has been crammed under that. Sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot has been shoehorned into that. Yeah. But I, my question for you, Daniel, is I've often seen the 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 spectrum here, and I'll just go liberalism, conservatism, libertarianism. Liberalism is big government, lots of centralized control yep. so that we can have services that that serve the social good. Conservatism, which is small government in principle, small government that provides for a robust national defense, um, the general wel- welfare of the public to make sure where our peanut butter doesn't have, you know, rat limbs in it. Yeah. Um, Gross. You know, <laughs> F- to make sure we have an FDA in, in, in a you know, FAA or, or whatever. So, and then libertarian government, which I've always thought was minimalism when it comes to government, maximalism when it comes to human independent yeah. independence and rights. Am I right about that or am I wrong about no, that? No, I, I think you, I, th- I think the, the, there's, <coughs> like with anything, you have to define your terms and, you know, some libertarians define themselves in some ways, you know, because they're libertarian. Um, and so I have a tendency towards seeing that government is going is always going to usurp. It's always going to tend to usurp its its position, its yes. right position before God. And so they're being constraint on it. Why you know? is that? Why are they doing that? Um, because they're led by sinful people. I think. Yeah, I think you know. Anytime that you you refer to government, you have to remember that you're referring to individuals. Sure. Who are, comprise a, an, an aggregate you know, of individuals yeah, who compose institutions. Or and, yeah. Um, and control and, so, and power is a drug. And, and yeah, yeah and it's infectious. I, it is. And, it is. Um, I think it's one of the reasons why God. So God gave the the gave Torah to uh, yes. his people. And as part of that, he actually gave laws for kings, even though they didn't have a king. And it looks like a really bad thing when they cry out for a king to be like other nations, right? right. Mm-hmm. I think it's more the, hey, you were supposed to be the light to the nations, not like other nations thing. But right. so what was what's the first obligation of the king? To transcribe Torah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. To write out the entire the entire book of Law, yeah, to remind them, thou art not a god, thou, you know, like you are constrained by this, and you're a servant to the the lawgiver who gives this. You're the mm-hmm. the you know uh, such a good point because when you look at the line of Davidic kings now, the vast majority of which were not Torah compliant. Yeah. Okay, 
that's exactly the reason why they were sinful and why they, God had to judge them. Yeah. Is because they were not doing that very thing. They were not Torah compliant. Um, yeah, that that's fascinating. I, I, I do agree with you. I think the tendency of human government is always to want to enlarge itself at the expense of personal freedom. And I think that there's there are good things built into our uh, founding documents to for us to push against that. Yeah. And I think the extremes on both ends that are trying to blow up the system to restart, <laughs> yeah. I think are not good instincts. They're probably not godly. I, I don't think it's a biblical position to do that. But but going to his point now about govern governance being a form of God's authority, external authority that now people are questioning and trying to either burn down or tear down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Christian's response to this has to be to remind people that we do have these external authorities that God has put in their place. And whenever those authorities, including the parent, the local civic government, the central, your state government or your central government, uh, your federal government, Whenever they try to usurp God's authority, the authority of God, <laughs> that is not a sphere of authority that God gave them, a title that God has not given them, yeah. then we have a responsibility as citizens of the heavenly kingdom to push back on that. And there's a there's a book that I'm reading right now called Slaying Leviathan, which is kind of a history of how the church has served that purpose nonviolently. They they have, the church has not been given. The, the the use of the sword in any you know in any capacity right um, but how traditionally the church has served uh, as a check on government yes. throughout the ages and and uh, uh, I haven't gotten all the way through so I can't come <laughs> <can't sleep>, but, <laughs> um, no but it, it's really fascinating to hear that that that's part of the heavenly vocation yeah is yes we, we are to be good citizens but we are also citizens of another world we are yeah we are also how, how does the church put a check the on representatives the of way? the true king of kings well i think part of it is prophetic i mean <clears throat> i personally think that when the book of revelation says the spirit of jesus is or the testimony of jesus is the spirit of prophecy the people who are in that that that's referring to yeah. are the saints who represent the testimony of Jesus. Yeah, okay. That is to say, you're dealing with a prophetic community. And one of our roles prophetically is to proclaim the gospel in the midst of many false gospels, right? right? And then what happens is because we don't bear the sword, the government does. <laughs> Sometimes the government brings the sword against us. And if you study the history of the prophets, that's exactly what happened yeah. to the prophets. You know, you look at Hebrews chapter 11. The prophets got their—they got sawn in two. They got their heads cut off. They got burned at the stake. Yep. And so, as the church exercises its role as a prophetic community to speak forth the testimony of Jesus, the testimony yep. of the gospel, this brings the ire now of rogue governments. Yeah, you know, bold and proclamation. Yeah, yeah, bold proclamation of the gospel See, is I really. I think this our is where technology vocation. serves the church because the Guten, the printing press has served the church. Sure has. So from the Bible itself to all of our documents, the ninety-five thesis. I mean, the the church has benefited from the technology of writing. And if you have access to the Wi-Fi, you can look up on Bible Gateway every version <laughs> of every Bible and every <laughs> language that has ever been made. I mean, that yeah. is it's just a phenomenal. Yeah. Explosion of the gospel yeah. through technology, really mm. quite quite astonishing. I do think some of this. Is, I don't think some of it. I, I agree with Truman. Um, he doesn't make the direct connection here, but the 
the explosion of the like the destruction of the concept of the nation state right there's an intentional delegitimization of that uh is born out of marxist thought yeah it is so we were talking after after a podcast last time that uh, you know, traditionally socialist, you know, people who who are Marxists say, "Oh no, we hate, we hate Nazism." Like <laughs> Nazis and communists are in opposition yes, to one what? another. They go, "Well, the reason you hate the national socialist is because of the nationalist part, not the socialist, <laughs> not part. The socialist part." You have the exact same philosophy of how to execute this stuff as the Nazis did, except you are international socialists. Right. You are inter-Nazis. Like, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> seriously. And, and part of, the, part of the, the method of bringing communist utopia to the, to the world is the destruction of, of right. nations. Right. right? Mm. And it becomes a workers', a workers is, utopia. That's so why right. if you listen to um, Nixon in his post-presidency um, inter- interviews, he says, we didn't lose Vietnam. We stopped communism. Otherwise, it would have spread to all Southeast Asia. No, we lost the... I mean, I'm, I'm not trying right, to right, play right, that right. we got a big W. <laughs> but I think it did put... It was a stopgap. It, yes, it wasn't the grand victory. A constraining force. But it was a constraining. That's a better way to put it. It wasn't yeah, yeah. a victory. He yeah, constrained yeah. it. To because it wanted it. to keep going. Yeah, and gave time to show that communist communism is a failing yeah. economic... Yeah. Dude, don't you know communism just hasn't been tried Real directly? <laughs> pure, <laughs> pure, yeah. pure communism. Please yeah. look up something called the no true Scotsman <laughs> fallacy. <laughs> okay, I'm going to move on before Daniel gets going here. Okay. <laughs> you like how I got my little dig on Marxism? There? Nope, I love it. It's great. Okay, I want to read from Colossians 3, 9 through 11 now. Okay, and I want to ask a question that's germane to what he's saying in the book. He says, the nation state Uh, I'm sorry, it says, do not lie to one another because you have taken off the old man together with his deeds and have put on the new man uh, that is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So there's the creational idea of the creational image of God. Put off the old man, Mm. put on the new man, so no one in Christ can have the excuse, my sin is justified. And I can just be saved by grace and stay the way I was, right? Identify the way I used to. Nope, you put off the old, you put on the new. Verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So then the question is, how should this passage inform our view of ethnicity and nationality? How might this passage suggest a Christian view of race or ethnicity? Uh, and how is this view different from how race is viewed in the world as an endless power struggle, like you were saying with Marxism, mm-hmm. an endless power struggle against endemic or systemic racial prejudice? So first question, how should we view this passage in terms of a Christian view of race and ethnicity? What What is the Christian worldview on this? I think Paul is um, setting a, a hierarchy of priorities. Yeah. And now he is establishing... There is something greater than one's born ethnicity, race, creed, if you will. Those are now secondary issues mm-hmm. to the gospel. Right. And so he's going to prioritize our unity in Christ, being of one yeah. faith, mm-hmm. one baptism, one, so one they're, nation. So they're secondary yeah. to our Christian identity yeah. now. Definitely. Yeah. Right. It's a, and I think it's a rhetorical device. It's that idea of in comparison to this, 
There's nothing. Yeah, it's not worth it. In comparison to what God has done in unifying us, you have no division. Right. In comparison, I don't think it is a, well, then we just don't recognize that there's no, male we obliterate no. these, I guess these, the these categories yeah, that right. are God imbued. Yeah. You know, right. I think he, like I said, so I think, I think Paul uses rhetoric that way to, to, to make his points. And in uh, context, mm-hmm. just like the Galatians passage, I think it's Galatians three, where he mentions a very similar thing. He throws male and female mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. What he's saying here is that in terms of equality, in terms of our standing before God, yeah. there are no divisions, there are no ethnic, ethnocentric, there are no, um, there are no gender divisions between us that would qualify one person as being more important to God right. versus another por- right. person being, being important to God. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what he's saying here. But what about nationality? Can a barbarian or a Scythian <laughs> still claim to be a Scythian? Can they still... Sure, I I would put it in this way. I have much in common with my American neighbors, co-patriots, if you will, but according to the gospel, I have more in common with my Chinese brothers and sisters than I do with my Americans. In the gospel. In the gospel. Not that I'm not American, and I love rooting. I'm going to root in a a friendly soccer game. I will root (laughs) for America, and my Chinese brothers and sisters can root for China. But I have more in in common because of the gospel. Mm -hmm. I have more to relate over. Right. Yeah. I don't think you can. I don't think you can adopt it as your primary identity. You can't. Mm. You can't. You can't identify. I'm an American first. I'm, totally. You know. So when you say I'm an American Christian, that you know, if if we're going by order of importance, that's yeah. a wrong statement. I'm a Christian right. American. I'm a Christian American. Yeah. <laughs> I, Christian I, who I, happens to be an yeah, American. I yeah. am a Christian yeah. who lives in exile in America, and so I work for the I work for the the good of the nation that I'm currently in exile in. Right. And I yeah. plant yeah. my gardens, and I <laughs> you know, yeah. and I and I do all that kind of stuff. But and so with anything, I, if someone were to say I'm a Scythian first. You've got wrong. You've got wrong priorities. That, that, that's a great, mm. great answer. So I want to mm-hmm. ask you guys this, Pastor James. I want to bring you in here. Um, so how is this, this view of race different from the world's, where race is just this eternal, endless power struggle between the haves and have-nots, or between those who are systemic racists who are in mm. the system? I mean, how is it different, and how should we respond to that mm. worldview that's in our ether? in the ether of our culture right now. Hmm. Well, it's, it's different in what we were just talking about, <clears throat> what you guys had said is identity, right? Um, that is Christians. Um, our identity is in Christ. We have brothers and sisters who we are closer to than our physical family. Uh, our spiritual unity, unity is more intense than even our blood unity among family members. Yeah. yeah. Um, biblically. And so, so I think there's a change in that, and whereas our society makes race the identity oh, identifying right. factor, right. I think we address it by preaching the gospel, right, right, <laughs> by proclaiming what Paul says in Romans Romans five, right, where he divides humanity under the camp of Adam and the camp of the new and better Adam. Good, good. Uh, there's answer. really two groups. That's right. it. Two um, races. Yeah, in a sense. There's the Adamic race, right, and there's the Jesus race, right. Yeah. And so we call people to enter into the new and better Adam through faith in him, um, through the preaching of the gospel. Uh, so I, I th- think that might answer your question. Uh, that sure. does answer. Well, that's and, a great answer. And, and you receive them as well. Like yeah. if, if you receive the believer in, mm. that, in that same sense. And, the, you know, the church 
had had struggles in the past and embracing the the oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the racial distinctions sure. and saying okay. you know yeah um, but Daniel our, isn't there systemic racism today is, uh, is, is there or is there not again first of you, all define that term you and gotta then define, you gotta <laughs> define terms because if you say systemic racism uh, you know are that you talking something... about are you know consequential impacts yeah. to now or are you saying institutional racism where where the institutional the institutions are fundamentally racist like uh, let me put a fine point on on the definition the vast majority of institutions government entertainment ed, a, academic all the the institutions are predominantly white they're run by white people are white people systemically racist genetically racist because that's what yeah. systemic racism in our culture today that's what it means yeah i i would i would argue that uh that i would argue no <clears throat> i don't do not hear me saying that i don't think that there are still impacts from legal segregation there's not impacts from uh from the history of 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 our racial politics we're reaping what we've sown. Yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that. I think when it comes to uh, equal protection under the law, if you can show me a law that is racist, I will stand with you against it all day, every day. Right. Absolutely. So a law that is designed like the Jim Crow laws Like were. the Jim Crow laws, yeah. If you can show me, if you can show me that, I will stand against it with you. If you, like, uh, there's a, it's hard to call him a scholar, um, but Ibram X. Kendi, he's, pro- he's probably smarter than me, so I, I need to be respectful. But Ibram X. Kendi, he defines... He's not smarter than you. He defines racism uh, circularly, but um, he, de- he defines it as uh, racist ideas, racist polities, policies that result in racial inequalities, right? Um, which is an, a non-answer to, to that question, but... His his prevailing theme is if there is any racial disparity, it is evidence of racism. Right. No concept of people's individual preferences, their cultures, their you know, like none of that. If the numbers don't match a perfect quota between thirty five percent of the population is uh, is is black, you know, seventy five percent of it or a uh, sixty uh, percent of it is this like if it doesn't match perfectly it's evidence of racism right which I think is so if there is a total majority madness, culture then that that's is, that just is racism yeah I, I think that's probably self-evidently false because if it were reversed then he would have to apply that same standard to himself and whatever tribe he affirms yeah. <laughs> you know so that that seems so that it, it and what i mean by self evidently false is if it's true it's obviously false yeah. i mean if it's if it's true then that has to be false because if you are the one in power and your and the race of your preference now is the majority race then you're the racist yeah. <laughs> and it's not systemic yeah. and, and it could not be endemic to whiteness and the, and the very fact that he he can say that with no I mean, and then draw speaking fees of twice my sure. salary yeah in in one speaking yeah engagement. with no compunction <laughs> you know it, it it's not it's not making your case for you here yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but 
if you are talking about systemic racism in the sense that I believe that sin is pervasive and has a tendency to, you know, I, I can't deny that. I sure, can't deny sure. that that there there are uh, um, racists in government. Of course. Can't deny that. that racism is know, sin. Yeah. And so long as there are sinners, there's going to be racism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So systemically, yes, there is systemic racism in that sense, but um, I don't think by virtue of the fact that you're white, you are systemically racist. That you have a European history that yeah. you're, yeah, I automatically think, a colonizer and yeah. imperialist uh, and all this. Or or of any race, you're yeah, automatically yeah. this or that. Josh, have you come across this mentality among youth where you've you've found that, oh, gee, there really is just an operating system at work here. <laughs> These kids just think like this today, that you... They don't think biblically. Um, it's kind of hard to say. Um, I don't know if I've noticed it specifically in our youth. I, I see it in social media definitely a lot more. Right. Um, among the youth for sure. Um. Yeah, I, I think um, it's kind of just like this like copy and paste ideology that kids like adopt now. Um, there's not much critical thinking going on about good way to put um, that truth or authority or anything. Um. We see like politicians and like not even just politicians, like pretty much anyone, like any influencers, really activists, yeah, activists, celebrities, um, just like spewing their ideas across the internet. Um, and wow, our kids, yeah, they they just pick them up and just kind of copy it and retweet them. it. Yeah, and that's my ide- ideology, yep. and it must be true because it's on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah good, a really good way to put that, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, on page 102 and 103, pages 102 and 103, uh, he mentions contraception. I, I want to get into this. Maybe not. Maybe this is not everyone's cup of tea, but I want to get into this because he mentions contraception as a technological innovation that has essentially made it possible for men and women to practice recreational sex. Uh, because if you have contraception and it's widely available and it's cheap and it's accessible, the idea here is that now recreational sex is just a thing. It's just a thing in our culture. It's part of our culture because now you don't have the potential consequences that you would have if, and I would add to this, he doesn't mention everything, but I would add to this uh, uh, treatments for STDs. Yeah. Like that also, that technological, that medical innovation has made it possible also for people to, to, not experience like if you were in the 1800s and you got syphilis your your eyeballs would fall out of your head i mean all your soft tissue parts would just fall off of your face so um yeah google google uh syphilis i I don't think we should do that if you do that (laughs) you'll see that like it's just horrific right so but if so if you mitigate the consequences now we can just practice sex as kind of a pleasurable recreational thing like we would go sit by the pool and read a book, right? So, so he mentions contraception, but then it got me thinking, he doesn't mention this, but it got me thinking about abortive pills, like abortion pills, now which are a new form of post-conception, I was going to say contraception, but it's no longer contraception. So it's not contraception, it's abortion after conception. That's what it is. But they're calling it contraception, right? So how evil... Uh, how is the evil of abortion part of this new groundless upside down ethic? And what's the church's responsibility to speak to hmm. this moral evil? Abortion on demand 
and now by in pill form mm -hmm. that allows you to have no consequences yeah. for recreational sex. Mm. We obviously have a prophetic responsibility here. I mean, I, you agree. Yeah. yeah. What is it? Pronounce it as evil. Call um, it evil. Because that's what it is. Yeah. Um, well, it's the, there's yeah. two things. Because in the rejection of the church and religion as an authority, one of the marks is one of the marks of that approach is to by the culture is just to label everything we're against and not what we're for. Right. So it's a it's a, a dual approach that creates attention. Yes, it is evil, but at but the what's same the time, good? The good is life, family, bringing children into the world, rearing mm -hmm. children as. God's image bearers, but then as little me's running around. Right. So th there is good and there is joy. It's not what Rousseau says. This is not an external oppression on my true happiness. This is going to be an avenue where my true happiness is going to be found. Man, so, we, so we hold both intention. Yes, mm -hmm. it is evil, but there is a greater good that this actually prevents. Such a good point, man. We give people, we do call evil evil, and we push back on a culture that is calling evil good. Yeah. But then we give them a vision for what is good, and what is good yeah. is the nuclear family, mom and pop, creating kids, and in that family, raising image-bearing children of God. Yeah, and, and and I think even I'm not I'm not against language. The word consequence is a good word. It is. But when you speak about the outcome of sexual congress as a consequence, you turn. Just subtly, you turn children into a burden. Yeah, they're a consequence of what you've yeah, done. It's a good. Yeah, they're good they're a negative outcome of what you've done. Yeah, and you were talking about how we have hated children in our in our society and the way that we've treated them. Yeah, yeah. Um, even some of the language that we use, of instead of saying, you know what ideal sexuality looks like, the ideal, man, woman, child. That's idea. That is the pinnacle of human sexuality. Right. Yeah. Mm. Uh, please don't hear me saying <laughs> sexuality with the sexual behavior with the child. But the procreation. I'm saying the the pro the, yeah. the 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 when you mm. see a the mom nuclear family. when you see a mom and a dad and a child together, mm -hmm. that is the pinnacle of human sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but what yeah. we've turned it into is the even the church has embraced this. The pinnacle of human sexuality is a satisfying sex life. Right. 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 Yeah. The, I mean, the devil mm. wants us to think kids are an inconvenience. Right. Yeah. yeah. Kids will take our time. They will take us away from things that we want to do. But praise God, we get to die to ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because kids are for holiness, not yeah. happiness. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, really that's right. That. My sister has 10, right? Mm. That's a lot. She, she got ten, and they have, it is <laughs> a lot. To multiply. And, Praise and the here's Lord. the thing. Each one of those little nuggets are amazing <laughs> little image bearers of God. And yes, there's difficulty. And yes, there, and you know, and you know, Kristen and I have only been able to have one thus far. And, and, um, but the reason that they have 10 is, and they, you know, they don't push this on anybody else is because, uh, they have a theology from scripture that nowhere in scripture, it, are children presented as a curse from God. Right. They're only ever presented as a blessing from that God. That is true. Mm -hmm. They become a curse when they've been trained poorly and right, act sure. foolishly and, and stuff like that. But um, When they've not been trained in the way they should go, Yeah, mm -hmm. they they can become a tremendous burden. But, it, but man, you're, your sister's right. Children now, are a blessing. They are, and not, and again, they would never say, "Oh, everybody needs to have kids until they can't have kids anymore." Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, 
but but again, it's such a contrary philosophy. You, you know, you, we would make an announcement to our friends, you know, Sarah's pregnant again, and they'd be like, "What? Why?" They have five. Shoot, they have I six. Felt, I felt they have that seven. after, they after have four. Did you feel people <laughs> yeah. like, what? Like, I stopped announcing it. Like, nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a thing now. Now, now I'm just being judged. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that, that, that the church has, has embraced that a little bit and, mm-hmm. uh, and not presented that ideal of, hey, this is what the pinnacle of human yeah. sexuality yeah, looks yeah. like. Now, in a fallen world, that's not always the case. You have barrenness. People struggle That's, with with same sex attraction. Like you have, we yeah. got we have to deal with that. We have to, you know. You well, I think James. Make sure that we're James, could you speak in. to that? I know Agatha's pregnant now, but you guys were trying for a long time. Barrenness was a was a real thing for a long time. So, Wait, is this an okay thing for us to talk about in public? I was just gonna ask, okay. I was gonna ask about that. If, if we call it the pinnacle without having kids, were you any less deficient? Is feeling in your relationship with the Lord because were of any more deficient? Hmm. Not having kids, maybe you can I frame mean, it in a, a different way. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a struggle, right? We so we we tried to have our own kids for eight years yeah. uh, and struggled. We did some medical testing and things like that, and nothing panned out. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, the Lord uh, chose to give us barrenness, uh, but I think just as we see children as a blessing from the Lord, we understand that ultimately God is sovereign over the womb. Right? Yes, he opens yeah. and closes the womb mm-hmm. biblically, and so so there's a Yes, children are a blessing, but we have to surrender ourselves to the sovereignty of God and be satisfied in Him alone. Um, His satis- will for you is a blessing as well. Yeah, our right. satisfaction doesn't come from having children. They're, mm-hmm. that, that, in a, that, again, is an idol, right? I'm trying to satisfy myself in having children. Amen. Or for me, the struggle was in my ability to provide children for my wife. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so there are definitely, there's, I mean, a huge massive yeah. problems that we had to work through as a couple yeah. Yeah, as, yeah. as me as a man um but i think ultimately it has to come down to that where it's it's the sovereignty of god over it that we we yield to him and him alone yeah. and find find our joy and contentment in him in the midst of barrenness man i think that's so. the that is the hardest mm-hmm. thing for us to do is to say lord i surrender mm-hmm. whatever will come what may mm-hmm. and but it doesn't mean that you guys through technology or whatever have not tried to mitigate or yeah, well, circumvent. And, yeah, and even now we've had the opportunity to uh, to pursue embryo adoption, yeah. where we we were able to adopt embryos of a family who did in vitro fertilization, then couldn't use their embryos, mm. and we were able to adopt those children. Um, and that's because of <laughs> yeah. technology. Right. And I think that's yeah. a wonderful thing. Where, it is. Where the curse, we are seeking to reverse the curse. Yeah, so, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, well. I have some suggest some suggestions about how we handle this issue of abortion in public, mm-hmm. and I just want to give you uh, a few bullet points. Uh, the first one is I think we need to always speak the truth in love. Like we need to speak the truth in love. Remind people that a human being isn't a blob of goo, uh, but a precious image bearer of God, and to say it in a way that is loving and redemptive and loves the people that we're disagreeing with. Because ultimately, our goal is to redeem them too, yeah. uh, not just to condemn them for mm-hmm. their their deception or their delusionary beliefs. Um, the second thing I would say is we need to offer mercy and grace to those who've sinned mm. and abort, aborted children. Abort, abortion is evil. It is a sin. But the women and the men who've been lied to in this were told that it would be an easy fix. 
uh, for their problem, like you were saying, mm-hmm. <laughs> for their inconvenience mm-hmm. of this um, thing that is happening to them. Um, and in, what I think the church needs to do is communicate that we don't view people who have sinned as pariahs. Yeah, We don't yeah. stigmatize them the way the world does, mm-hmm. right? We, we model something else, which is Jesus with the woman at the well in John 4, mm-hmm. or in John 8, Jesus with this woman who was dragged before him, caught in the act of adultery. Uh, and what we do is we model the mercy and the grace of the Lord mm-hmm. for the people who have sinned, calling them to repentance and calling them to confession mm-hmm. of their sins mm-hmm. and to be washed clean and forgiven of their sins, but to do it in a way that, yeah. that shows them the love of the gospel because it is loving to tell a person the truth. It is yeah. loving for your oncologist to level with you and tell you you have a cancer that will kill you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need radical surgery without killing the patient here. Um, socially, I think we must not shun or stigmatize anyone who's had the procedure or approved of it. Jesus was called a friend of sinners for a reason, because he was very adjacent to sinners. And the Pharisees wouldn't go near people who disagreed with them, Hmm. yet Jesus would. And I think if people aren't calling us a friend of sinners, we're not doing it right. We don't look like Jesus. So yes, I do think that we have a prophetic role to play in calling the culture to God's moral standard that is in his law, and then calling them to the gospel, which is to redeem them from their sins. But I also think we, we need to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to show them the love and the mercy of Absolutely. God. Mm-hmm. And if that's not our commitment, like I say, I just don't think we're doing it the way Jesus is doing yeah. it. I, I think one of, the other, one of the other important things to do in this um, is... I don't want to bind anybody's conscience here, but I kind of do. Let me consider whether I should. Okay. Uh, If we are, we have to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to uh, valuing the the human life Mm -hmm. and say, you may not want your child, but I do. Yeah. Mm. And be willing to act on that, you know? Um, Not every family is called to adopt. I get get that. But to just say, you know, to to say, please don't kill your child is one thing. To say, please don't kill your child. Give it to me. (laughs) You know, I'll care for it. I'll love it. I'll, you know. Raise um, it in the gospel. Yeah, is is, um, I think something that that more people should be considering. Um, Mm -hmm. And... I think we can bind a little bit, right? Because James tells us that true religion is this, that we care for orphans and widows in their affliction. Yeah, for sure. And so there is some level of, I don't want we're not adopting, but we should be striving to care yeah. for that. Yeah, and you should be in the fight with with people who are mm-hmm. yeah, maybe. adopting and, and helping yeah, to care for them. Right. And, 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 uh, or as a church so. promoting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like the, what, one of the things we do as a church is we fund, we have an adoption uh, line item in our budget that we fund to help people adopt kids. And the weird thing, I mean, we've helped people adopt kids who have taken advantage of that fund and then left our church. Yeah. <laughs> like right after that. Mm-hmm. And a it's like, times. Eh, it's not just an it's, it's been a couple of times. And that's a little heartbreaking. But the mm-hmm. fact is, we it's were on the side of the angels with this <laughs> um, because mm-hmm. the, they still either still have those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I can think of one couple that actually doesn't have the kid that they adopted, they had to give the kid up. Um, for other reasons, but 
where as a church, we promote this as an option. And we say yeah. to people, listen, if you want to adopt children, adoption is a good thing. Abortion mm-hmm. is evil. And there's a huge line of people mm-hmm. waiting to adopt children. So why would we kill them? Why don't we, why don't we adopt them and not murder them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you, Daniel. Thank you for that, that there gut is, check. Uh, you guys don't know this, but I've, I've had two conversations with a, a woman of our church who is going, wants to start a, you, you know, grief share. Yeah. But it's specifically for women who've had adopt, uh, abortions. Mm. And she knows of at least five in our church, and I'm sure there's many more. And that's mm. a secret sin. And so I think you're graciously speaking to you're not a pariah yeah, right. is an important thing. And we need to encourage this woman mm-hmm. as she I don't think Jesus care. ever made Mary Magdalene feel like a pariah. Absolutely not. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. she, had, she had been in a life of sin, mm-hmm. and Jesus accepted her. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't approve of what she did. He called her to repentance, set her free of the dark forces that were in control of her life. And then she became a a very productive member of the church. But it is important. He called them to repentance. Repentance is the key. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. One of the things that the culture is pushing back on is, I mean, the shout your abortion movement, all that kind of stuff, is not identifying this as this, this is... This sin. is sin. <laughs> um, now, we don't, after repentance happens, we don't keep reminding people, hey, remember that time that you sinned? <laughs> right. Remember that time that you sinned? But like, we do call them right. to repentance. But there has to be that. That has to be part of it. So yeah. if, you, <clears throat> if you are in our congregation and you've had an abortion, you've driven someone to an abortion, whatever, the gospel is for you. Hmm. Christ, there's forgiveness mm-hmm. in Christ Jesus for yes. that sin. You don't have to lie to yourself and tell you that it wasn't sin. Right. There's no healing that will come from that. Right. There's no right. hope that can be found in that. Yeah. But but know that that is not that is not uh, uh, calling it sin is not an act of shaming you. No. It's no. calling you to to, to no. freedom no. in Christ Jesus. It's James as well. Confess your sins to one another and pray mm-hmm. for one another so that your soul may be healed. Amen. Yeah. And Amen. I think it's a powerful recognition that confession is the first act of obedience to celebrate, not the final act of what sin cost. Yeah. Sin is, I mean, confession is worth celebrating, mm-hmm. not worth hiding. Man, yeah. all of you guys have nailed this and I just want to, I just want to put a fine point on it this way this is not only for women but it's also for the men who yes. fathered these babies mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. also need to repent of enabling abortions so that they don't have to have the inconvenience <laughs> of raising a child this yes. is also on the male side too yeah, right. and and i would just want to reiterate daniel's heart if you have been that man or a young man or an older man repentance is not to judge you it's so that you can be redeemed in the cross. Yeah. It's redemptive. I want to turn now, though, to, to, uh, to the last thing I want to hit here is what about men? And now a, apparently a rising percentage of females who feel trapped in pornography. How do mm. we show the same grace and truth to men who are carrying around this secret sin, which is enabled by the, would you say, the anonymous nature? Mm. Of it, it used to be that if you wanted to look at pornography, you had to drive to, uh, you know, to a store and buy it, mm-hmm. buy a magazine, uh, bring it home in a paper bag, or mm-hmm. do whatever you had to do mm-hmm. to hide it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when I was a little kid, 
me and my best friend, Brian, we found his dad's like penthouse magazines and we were too little to really know what was in them. And so we sat up all night just flipping through them, laughing at the pictures. Yeah. And But he had a stash that his son had found under the bed. And for all of my dad's faults, I always thank God that my dad didn't ever do that. <laughs> you know, like I thank God that I never found like his stash of magazines. But yeah. now with the anonymity of the Internet and the, you know, the phones in our pockets, mm-hmm. men are trapped they're they're bound by this thing. So how should we as a church now address that? Because this goes back to his chapter. This is another way in which we dissolve the family, another way in which we we assault uh, God's plan for the family yeah. and the flourishing of of the individuals within the family. What say you? There's no quick fix. I need, to, I need to reiterate that again and again to every man I talk to. This is not a quick fix. This is not something that can be done externally. It must be done in devotion to the Lord, and it must be in devotion with a community of mm. believers. Yeah. A, right. a part, any piece of that not mi- I'm missing, it, there is no victory in this. There is no, and I know Daniel and I have spoken a lot about this. Um, it was my past. I would still say I have, I've been set free, I've been liberated, but on this side of eternity, I don't know, I don't, I don't feel confident saying I have victory sure. yet. However, yeah. with the abundance of counselors, with the wisdom of the gospel, and with brothers like you who avail themselves to confession, yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. I, I've seen the liberation come in a grand the, pretty This grand is way. the power of community. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Of like living in embodied mm-hmm. community. Which, which requires talking about it. I mean, it requires yeah. being transparent. I talk about it in my community group when I'm wrestling or struggling or have these different things. Right. And that, that's not something off limits. It should, be, um, it should become normative to talk about it. So if secrecy is inflaming the issue, mm-hmm then the difficulty of making it public yeah. is the beginning. Now, mm-hmm. we don't want to cast our pearls before totally, swine, totally agree. but at the same time, we, like you said, confess your sins to one another, as James. Yes. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Bingo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So community is critical. Mm-hmm. Community is definitely, is definitely critical. Um, uh, it becomes such a constant companion that it seems... Um, it doesn't seem heinous anymore. Right. Mm. So one of the things that we need to do, one of the things that we need to do is we need to paint such a compelling picture of biblical sexuality Mm. that anything outside of that becomes revolting becomes, I mean, instantly like this is, Mm. this is wrong. But one of the problems I get is, you know, uh, is, People, you know, guys will come in, talk to me, and it's just kind of a, oh, yeah, no, I struggle with this. No, dude, this is killing your soul. Right. Mm-hmm. It's killing your soul. It's killing your marriage. It's yeah. kill, killing your love for your wife. It's going to, it's going to kill your love for your daughters. It's gonna, it's gonna mm-hmm. do, it's mm-hmm. going to mm-hmm. murder, murder that which is good in your life. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so not taking it as just, ah, oh, yeah, this is the the problem that all men struggle with. It, it, what and, you're doing there is you're saying, listen. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut, cut it, it off, off throw drag, it away, deal drastically. Yeah, drag it out into the light and put a bullet in its head. Right. You know, <laughs> right. like that that level of that level when when your old man on the cross is crying out for mercy, 
pound the nails in even more. Right. You know, like right. Right. It, it takes that level of intensity because the intensity of, of pornography's grip on you yeah. Yeah. is something different than many other many other sins because yeah. because you know Truman recognizes in here those feelings of sexuality so unless are so visceral and so controlling and there's physical components and mental components and right. emotional components that that, some, that other sins you just know, don't, chemical don't nece- necessarily have yeah. and so dealing radically with it and for most men the radical thing is confession right mm-hmm. and not just confession of I struggle with lust it's the specific struggle, nature of that I struggle yeah. with this at this time mm-hmm. and in this mm-hmm. st- like it's the hey I'm yeah. cleaning all the corners out so that nothing mm. is is yep. left there to fester. Right. Mm. And most men are unwilling to do that. Right. Mm. It, in my experience. It it, ha- mm. it is really hard for men to do that. They they will come and confess to a pastor, but I have to say I resonate 100% with you. The confession often is, well, yeah, I ju- I just I mean, I struggle with that, you know, sometimes. Mm. It's like, hold on. If you just sat here and told me you, you struggle with a mild heroin addiction, dude, I'm going to get you into rehab ASAP. Like that, that's, it's not going to end well. It's going to give you a false view of what sex is. It's going to give you a mm-hmm. false view of what um, a relationship looks like. And like you say, we give them a compelling view, a vision yeah. of mm. biblical sexuality, of biblical, biblical um Fulfillment, satisfaction in a relationship. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. have to replace that. Mm-hmm. What say you, Pastor? What's been your... I think it's, I mean, what all you guys said is yes and amen to, right? Um, but that, that response that we do get sometimes when you say, oh, I'm, I'm just struggling. Well, think of the radical amputation we just talked about. We should call it radif- radical mortification. Um, what is Jesus talking about in that context? He's talking about if you lust after a woman in your mind cut your hand off right to understand and not and it's not just pornography it's all sin we must understand what sin is yeah that it is a holy offense to our loving father in heaven right and as we increase our sight of sin it increases our sorrow and our shame of sin that leads us to turning and confessing our sin right but we must understand the gravity of the situation Mm-hmm. Uh, that sin is not just, oh, yeah, you know, I told a lie. Oh, yeah, I had a little bit of lust. N- no, you, 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 that sin was was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ right. upon the cross. And so there should be, as we hopefully have our eyes open to the gravity of our sin, we understand that where sin increased, grace superabounded. Oh, yeah. man, um, such a great we, perspective. as we see that, we then see the seriousness of that sin which draws us to confession of yeah. that sin, right. but yeah. also the deliverance of it, that it's, there's no shame uh, because Christ has paid the price amen. in full. Amen. Yeah. Um, Isn't so. that where personal revival, like revivals like the Asbury Revival and mm. things like this, would not be necessary if people dealt that seriously with their sins? Mm. Like if people saw, mm. man, my violation of my very nature, mm. like this sin which violates the way God is created, Mm. My ontology mm-hmm. is so much more grave than eating a piece of forbidden fruit. Mm. Like if eating a piece of fruit because it was just a command uh, offended the holiness of God, was an affront to his holiness, then mm-hmm. surely I should see me violating my very own ontology, me viol- violating mm-hmm. my very own nature as God has wired me as a human being would be so much more... <laughs> Uh, worse, mm-hmm. so much worse, but they're all sin. Um, 
Good, good answer. What say you, Josh? Um, yeah, I was actually talking about this with our youth um, last Wednesday. Um, and I was comparing like God's view of sin to ours and how he's like infinitely more severe um, than we are. And like this world is just like specifically with pornography. I didn't mention this, but um, that's something I've struggled with as well. Um, yeah. And it very much has completely distorted um, my view on sex, especially as like newly married. Um, yeah. And it like being married to Grace over the last few months is like my views, like I think starting to shift more towards a biblical view, but yeah. Yeah. It, it's like, it, it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, just like, just like reading the Bible and truly like picking my opinion um, on just all sin in general. Right. Um, and how I easily blow it off. You know, I see sin in culture and like, I don't even have anger about it. You know, I, sure. I'm hmm. just indifferent to it. Right. In so many different senses. Um, yeah. Or God, you're sitting God there watching a Netflix show or something or some mm-hmm. show that you really enjoy. You enjoy the premise. You enjoy the whole idea of it, the, the, the arc of the characters and it, all of that's fun. But then there are the, these super sinful, just fallen elements in it. And you go, why am I enjoying this? Like, why can I sit and watch John Wick 4 and enjoy murder porn? Like, you know what I mean? Just the, the scripture says that God hates violence. Yeah. Right. So why am I delighting in it? I mean, that's just an example. So yes, good, good response. I, pr- I appreciate your openness and your honesty. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just give just a few things here that I think are important and feel free to chime in. I think it's really important for us to give instruction. I think we need to give instruction. We need to instruct on this. We need to have some environment, discipleship, either groups, instructing on it from the pulpit. I've spoken to it uh, several times now when Paul mentions sexual immorality, but just giving, helping people to understand that what the world is offering here through that little phone, mm-hmm. through that iPad, is a cheap knockoff of the real deal, mm-hmm. of what he actually has for you. Mm-hmm. He has something better for you, and yeah. what he's made for Absolutely. you is so much better. Trust me, a guy in his mid-50s, early 50s, it's so much better than 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 that cheap thing that the world is offering you. That's just a cheap alternative. So we instruct them about it. We also model it, you know, and what I mean by this is as pastors or shepherd, as men uh, in the church, we need to model what it means to be a real man, what it means to be a real man. We need to teach young guys that what it means to be a real man is to be a caring shepherd in the home, Mm -hmm. to be a caring fatherly shepherd in the home Mm -hmm. and forsaking all for our wives and then loving our wives the way Jesus sacrificially loved his bride, mm. which is to give ourselves even though it may cost us, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. dearly, which I think is what cruciform love is. And then also restoration. We need to provide environments where men who are broken can confess and they can throw their pearls before uh, people who won't trample them yeah. mm-hmm. under like like pigs who will trample them under. Um, but where they can experience redemptive love, Mm -hmm. like the redemptive love of Jesus. Men need this. Men need Mm -hmm. redemption. They need environments where they can can confess and come clean, drag that sin into the light, Mm -hmm. and then begin a restoration process. And then I think also, lastly, just like with abortion or any issue, prophetic. I mean, I think we have a prophetic responsibility to warn the culture 
that this path, just like abortion or just like Marxism, will lead to the destruction of humanity. Mm. It will lead to the destruction of the image of God. Jesus warned the disciples. He warned the disciples and the Jews in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. He warned them in the Olivet Discourse that if you follow this path of revolution, it's going to lead you to destruction. Paul warned the church repeatedly. He says, as I previously warned you, people who live according to the works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we do have a prophetic responsibility to to proclaim, Mm -hmm. to preach the word. And then you guys, you know, the idea of here, community. uh, I just think it's so important for people to just become embedded and to transplant their lives into new community, the Mm -hmm. community of the gospel. And... uh, so that, I think he didn't really offer in the book. So if you read the book, if you're reading along in the book, he didn't offer any solutions in particular, but I think we can today talk about the practical stuff sure. that we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to speak to or elucidate from the book today? Yeah, the... Uh, the well, Good topic for next time. It's been a good long. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for your time. And see you. See you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye bye.